shaming light. It makes you feel like you're nothing. My big brother makes me feel like a million bucks, even though in truth I am nothing. Without him, I'm nothing. You know, a lot of people think I'm a very good therapist. They think I'm joking when I say he does the work, I collect the fees. It's a great arrangement. The Holy Spirit is such a better therapist than I could ever be. People think I'm intuitive or, or, or kind of you know, real sensitive and able to spot things. The Spirit just gives it. I repeat it as long as it meets those criteria. I collect the fees, which is great. You know, unlike my dad, I like nice things. <laughs> you know, I don't work for the money, but I do like nice things. He never said we couldn't like nice things. Uh, right. Um, Rick. Okay. This picture, really drink in this picture. This is how most Christians feel at the very core of their being. Crushed. Just crushed by the pressure. Because most Christians forget who they are. Identity is everything, everything in Christianity. Surviving is how most people have learned to be in their old nature. Surviving and living are not the same. They're not the same. They're two different software. Surviving is constantly worrying about, am I good enough? What are people thinking? It tends to be very self-centered, although it doesn't feel that way. It feels like very self-conscious, but it ends up being self-centered. Because you're worrying about whether the other person is being fair. Am I getting a, 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 a raw deal? For many Christians, on one side is this very powerful force called how things were before they became Christians. And afraid that's how they're going to end up. And on the other side, desperately hoping fervently praying to be able to, to be this new creation that God says they are and are afraid that maybe there's a catch. And they think that that's, that their new nature is the one that's feeling that. That's not their new nature. Your new nature is the Spirit who you are when the Spirit is being manifested. Now, here's the trick. Who I am, Jim Henman, is becoming. That's who I am, becoming. People don't like to have a process identity. They want, it, they want something they can measure and weigh and compare because my, my identity is better than hers. You know? His is better than mine, but I'm going to keep working at it until I can beat him. You see? A process 
you can't compare because everyone's process is unique okay the truth is that's just a, another part of your old nature that you need to be his ambassador to nurture and move from the driver's seat into the passenger seat lovingly firmly and reminding yourself who you really are is becoming in Christ now this is a theological issue that is tricky and I love rhetorical questions I answer rhetorical questions all the time and I love tricky theological issues since the Holy Spirit is but Christianity must be done perfectly not by me but by you <laughs> okay the fact is I just went blank I truly had it blow out of my mind but you know that's all right so I'm going to go on and it may come back and if it does I'll be happy to let you know like Alice's restaurant any of you seen Alice's restaurant the movie it's an old one from the 70s or 60s 70s and Arlo Guthrie is singing Alice and you can get anything you want at Alice's restaurant Jeff and Alice and then he would sing for and he said, his, his points coming around well it's like that except it's not coming around I guess so I'm gonna move on God has a great sense of humor guys he has a great sense of humor. He doesn't care you don't do it right. Just do it best you can. Try to stay out of the way. Identity leads to perception. When I'm believing I am, in fact, a new creation, it changes how I look at things. Identity leads to perception. For example, as I've been working on this book, one section, recovery is a lot like gardening. Now gardening, as a child growing up, was like the death march to Bataan. It was like Auschwitz. It was like yuck, for those of you that are young enough that you don't know the other two, okay? It was horrible, it was miserable, it was something to be avoided at all cost. It was Bermuda, Bermuda with roots down to China. And my dad had the capacity to make it miserable, truly miserable. And I swore when I was a kid, I would not do yard work when I grew up. Now, Sonia, my bride of 32 years, had a father that loved yard work, loved projects, could build a, sh a building, he could build furniture, he could do, he could fix cars. He could do anything. She assumed, since I'm a man, <laughs> oh, I like yard work. <laughs> she assumed I could fix things. Nope. Nope. So when Sonia, who loves, she's in the garden club, you know, in Modesto, and, and she loves to garden, and she relaxes when she's gardening. So she's coming and she's really sweet and she says, Jim, you know, go out and, and, and just kind of kind of fix up the yard a little bit. What she's saying is, would you like to come and have an intimate moment of, of relaxing with me? 
What I hear is, do you want to walk on broken glass barefooted? <laughs> okay. In addition to that, my definition of relaxing, this is, this is very important. Sitting watching TV? <laughs> Sitting listening to music? Sitting reading Tom Clancy or something else that has no redeeming value? <laughs> Sitting and talking? Sitting and snoozing? This is relaxing. That is torture. This is relaxing. So I can face a couple of choices. I can either have my wife feel hurt and rejected in her love offer and relax. I work hard. I love what I do, but I do work hard. I do like to relax. Or I can go with her and resent it. I only have two choices, right? Black, white, yes, no, right, wrong. No, no. But I believed that for 31 and a half years. I'm a slow learner. <laughs> so, as I began writing this new book, God has this horrible tendency of wanting to field test it on me first. <laughs> I hate that part of writing. That is really the hardest part. The writing itself is easier than the field testing. So, I say to myself, you know, maybe I should learn to enjoy yard work. Nah. That's my old nature. Nah. It's horrible. So I start looking at yard work through Sonia's eyes. I start just sort of hanging out with her and once in a while without no one's looking, just me pull a weed. You know, I don't want anyone to realize that I'm actually, you know, doing the yard work thing. And little by little, I realized, hey, this isn't bad. This is kind of fun. Unless it means I'm not relaxing. The power of definition is at the heart of addictions. Power of definition is at the heart of all the psychological problems. Relationship problems is the power of definition. What does a heroin addict do to feel good? He shoots up heroin. So he can barf and nod out <laughs> and be a zombie. But that's that person's definition of having a good time. Or a tweaker, you know, is going to do their meth. Or an alcoholic is going to drink. Now what they forget to mention to themselves is, and when I drink, I become a jerk. And everyone that loves me is hurt terribly by what I do. But luckily, I'm drunk, so I don't recognize it, I don't remember it, I don't experience it, and they're lying. <laughs> Definition is everything. Take a deep breath. What areas of your life would you like to make different? I used to smoke cigarettes. I mooched cigarettes. I was a social smoker. My clients would give me a cigarette at the beginning of the session. I was at family service agents. I was director there. And we'd smoke and talk and talk and smoke. This one guy 
came in one day, the day after I had stopped smoking, and laid two cigarettes on my desk and said, let's get this out of the way so we can get to business. And I said, I don't smoke. Jim, take the cigarettes. Let's get down to business. I have some stuff I want to deal with today. And I said, I don't smoke. I didn't quit. I never quit smoking. I became a non-smoker. Take a deep breath and feel the difference. It takes no willpower for a non-smoker not to smoke. A smoker who is quitting, a smoker who is not smoking, is deprived. And they will resent it, and the craving that comes from that, and the tension that comes from that, will generate another addictive pattern. They'll eat, they'll do something, because they're feeling deprived. It's not because they're not smoking, it's because they're not having their identity fulfilled. What would you like to change? Put it in a positive form. How do I want to be becoming? Starting right where I'm starting. Feeling good about noticing right where I'm starting. Feeling my big brother's hand on my shoulder. Having absolute faith in me. Loving me perfectly no matter what I do. It makes change a lot easier. One of the special gifts that has come for me since working on this book and now the talk, my son and daughter-in-law graduated from Stanislaus State this last June. They live in Turlock. They have a house in Turlock. They both have been working like dogs in school, working, you know, working for money to live, you know, you got to crack the nut, right? And so they hadn't had a chance to really do much with their house. And they're having a party for graduation. And so Jesse calls up, Mom, he didn't call up Dad, he called up Mom, listen, could you help us uh, get the yard in shape? Now, to Sonia, that's an invitation to have fun. I kind of groan and say, oh, how long... How long is that going to take? You know? Not to Jesse and Leslie. I, I, I'm not that honest. <laughs> you know? But to Sonia, I say, oh, man, it's hot. You know, it's, Sonia looks at me like, Jim, knock it off. These two kids graduated with great honors. They've been self-sufficient. We can go down and help them. Quit sniveling. <laughs> Quit whining. So we go down there. And this is the gift, okay? This is the context for the gift. Now this is the gift. It is Bermuda. <laughs> it is Bermuda. The front yard does have Bermuda. And there's Jesse and me. And it's hot. Jesse's buffed. He's big, strong. I'm not. <laughs> and so I have him do the harder part of the work. He's doing the shoveling. It's, it's his yard, you know. <laughs> so we're working. We're sweating like pigs. 
And all of a sudden I realize, I did a split screen, it's, it's a technique in, in the bus book where, it's also in the handbook as well, where I was seeing Jesse and I, I was feeling, I love my son. I love both my sons. I love my daughter-in-law. They're very, very special to me. Very, priceless. And here I am with my son that I love, doing something I have normally hated, and loving it. I was loving it. It was like Jesse had given me a wonderful gift in inviting me to help him. Well, actually invited his mom, but letting me come along, not to be accurate. It was a wonderful gift. And then I saw my dad and me as a kid. And I said, God, thank you. Because when, when we became pregnant, and we became pregnant with our first child, you know Jesus in the garden where he's praying so fervently that he's, he's sweating blood? Father, please pass this cup past me. Remember that? Now, how many folks of the Pharisee bent would say, he should have had more faith? Why is he sweating blood? Because he knew what was going to happen to him, right? But when we became pregnant, I would pray fervently, God, give me daughters. Give me daughters, please. I have no clue how to be a father to sons. I can't catch the ball. I'm not athletic. If it's a girl, then at least Sonia can kind of do the, you know, the girl thing, and I can provide. I'll work like a dog if I need to. I'll make all the money they need, you know. But don't give me sons, Lord. I don't want to be the kind of father I had. I don't mean that disrespectfully. And in a moment, you're going to hear more about my dad and, and, and why he was the way he was. So God gave me two very athletic sons. <laughs> and it's what I needed in my growth. And how often when you pray for something and the opposite comes, and you're thinking God didn't answer your prayer, is it because you, not God, were mistaken? Think about that. I want to share a poem from someone in, in the care group, the Care and Grace group. No matter where I go, there I am. New program, old program, there I am. Listening with my head, listening with my heart. Living in the past, living in the present. Here I am, I am becoming in Him. I am starting here, where I am, again and again. I am becoming aware, alive, accepting me where I am. Except when I'm not. And there I am starting again. Now I have choices here where I am. I can choose to stay or I can choose to be becoming in Him where I am. So I choose to be me becoming in Him right here where I am starting again. That is so cool. That captures care. That captures caring grace. That captures my belief in the change process. I'm always a new program. That's what we call, as a Christian, it'd be like being in my new nature. I'm always a new program. I wrote the books. There's all these CDs and, and, and theories that I've developed. I'm always a new program, except when I'm not. 
And that's what Paul was saying 2,000 years ago. I am not my mistakes. That's not who I am. It's what I'm doing. When I'm having a tantrum, which is much less often than it used to be. Right, Sonia? Yeah. There's a right answer to that. <laughs> when I'm flat in the mud, it's not who I am, people. It's where I am. It's how I'm feeling, not who I am. We need to understand that our identity does not change. Our identity is becoming. Now, although Christ is fully formed in us, when we receive him, that was the point I was getting at. The theological distinction, it came. It did come, just out of order. See, he is, he's merciful. Okay? It'd be nice if he'd given it to me the first time, but the fact is, believing it is a lifetime process for most of us. The becoming is believing the truth of who we are. Believing the preciousness that we are in his eyes. That's the becoming. This, this is my dad at age eight. I got a scanner. I bought a scanner when I started writing the bus book so I could have two pictures in that book. One was a picture of six-year-old Jimmy. That's me. And the other was a picture of my dad at age eight. His life was more traumatic than most people would ever go through. That's said in my office. His mother died when he was four. He was raised in the Ozarks of Arkansas before the social service system was in place. He'd be handed from farmer to farmer as kind of a work animal. He wet the bed every day. He'd get beaten most days for wetting the bed. When once in a while he would be with his dad. He loved that because the beating stopped. But there was total poverty. They'd be sitting there with potato soup, which is not what you think of as potato soup. It's like a little bit of potato in water. And I said, well, Dad, what's it like? And he said, he was talking about one time when he was a kid, and he was hungry. He was hungry. And it was cold. And he said, boy, I wish there was more. But there's no bitterness. There's no bitterness. What my dad taught me was a profound gift. And that was expectations, not experiences, create resentment and bitterness. Expectations, not experiences, create resentment and bitterness. Now, he was messed up. He had little rigid compartments. He was not mentally, emotionally, a healthy guy. Although he was much older than my mother, she was his mommy. He'd call her, Mother! Mother! These kids are putting me on the spot! Mother! And he'd just scream if I'd ask him something like, Hey, can I go to the show? Don't put me on the spot! He's four years old. 
Now, I didn't know about his background until I was in my 40s. When I realized what his background was, he didn't do a bad job. Didn't do a good job. But considering what he had to work with, didn't do a bad job. Why should I resent him for not knowing how to do it? My mom, on the other hand, we can all turn and look at her. She's there. That's my mommy. I love her. <laughs> my mother had the capacity to give us kids, myself, my sister and brother, grace. True, unconditional acceptance. My mom believed I could do anything even though I was flunking out of elementary school, even though I wasn't even supposed to go to college, she had absolute faith that I could do anything I put my mind to. She couldn't give that to herself, but she could give it to us kids. Later she got into recovery and her and Velmer, who's really a dad to me. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. They do caring grace and care up, at, up the hill sometimes whenever the weather permits and her health permits. But the fact is we are not our story. And our story affects where we're starting today. Hear that distinction. I am not the kid that flunked out of school, elementary and on. And those experiences affected how I perceive the world today. Right. Next. Some enchanted evening. The next one. There we go. It's nice to not to be the only one that's imperfect. I love you, Rick. <laughs> that's the reason Rick and I get along good. <laughs> We have a self-image. At the core, who do I believe myself to be? Am I a gangbanger? Am I stupid? Am I whatever negative things you might see yourself to be? And when you move outside of that self-image, out of that comfort zone, that space on either side of the set point, tension begins to develop. If I think I'm stupid and I get too stupid, I start getting smarter. If I start having too many successes, I will sabotage it because it's not how I see myself. Our self-image thermostat can change if we allow ourselves to change it. We use a split screen. Every time I make a success, something moving in the direction I want to accomplish, I move the setting. I see myself on the left side, an old, old program. On the right side, new program. I keep moving the setting. If not, as you make success in your recovery, you will be drawn back by addiction to the familiar. It's a powerful force that underlies all other addictions. Addiction to the familiar. Again, there's a nugget on that in the bus book that explains that in more detail. And, and the truth is that no matter what, 
you will be affected by your self-image thermostat. You can change it if you want. It's not that hard to do if you allow yourself to do it. God's plan is not hard. But it does require something that most people aren't willing to, to do. And that is to live consciously. To live consciously in the present and not be suffering from identity Alzheimer's. Identity Alzheimer's is a spiritual disease that I overlooked earlier in my notes. And I will talk about it for a moment right now. You all know the medical disease Alzheimer's. It's, it's one of the most horrible diseases I could imagine, particularly for the loved ones. Until it's fully formed, it's horrible for the person themselves. Once they get past a certain point, it's not so horrible for them, but it is horrible for the people that love them. Identity Alzheimer's is when a Christian forgets that they are a new creation and believe they are their old nature. Take a moment, take a deep breath. When you think about who you truly believe yourself to be, do you believe yourself to be a new creation becoming? Or do you believe yourself to be your old nature? Those qualities, habits, characteristics that are coming from your old nature. Most Christians, if they're honest, are seeing themselves based on their old nature. I call it identity Alzheimer's. Another poem by Roberta from uh, Caring Grace, My Identity. Allow me to see myself and others through your eyes and respond to what I see in your nature. O oh Lord, as I have prayed that these last few years, I sense that you are answering that prayer. I catch glimpses of myself as one held very dear in your eyes, and I am amazed by your grace. I am who you see. I can let go of the old self and see accurately, though imperfectly, the real me. The past, the pain, the perfectionism, depression are not who I am. By your grace, I am learning to see my true identity as new creation in Christ. And as I learn to see others more accurately, I can let go of expectations and allow your grace to flow through me to them. Little by little, this is coming to pass. I am so grateful, Lord, as I find my home in you. I thank you that I am a part of your family. Wow. Wow. That is truth, guys. That is truth. Powerful, powerful truth. That's why Paul, the most learned man of the day, said, all I know is Christ and Him crucified. All I know. This is the man that was the most knowledgeable in the world at that time. And all I know is Christ and Him crucified. James said, and James 1.22, I love James. I, James is my kind of guy. I love Paul too, except Paul and I are very, very... Paul doesn't have any trouble judging. I do. So, I mean, he, he calls it, that soccer ball's out. <laughs> Paul have no trouble calling the soccer ball out, okay? Me, well, it's kind of close to the line. I don't know. I'm more like, um, is it Bartholomew? The, the other, well, it's, 
that's another, that's another talk. James 1.22, and remember, it is a message to obey, not just to listen to. So don't fool yourselves, for if a person just listens and doesn't obey, he is like a man looking at his face in the mirror. As soon as he walks away, he cannot see himself anymore or remember what he looks like. But if anyone keeps looking steadily into God's law for free men, he will not only remember, he will not only remember it, but he will do what it says, and God will greatly bless him in everything he does. James came up with identity Alzheimer's before I did. Who would have thunk? He took his name from me, and then he took his idea from me. <laughs> what are you going to do? Huh? What are you going to do? God has truly a great sense of humor, like I said before. The serenity prayer is sort of like apple pie in the American flag. So what does he do? He says, Jim, I want you to revise it. You get hung up for that. You get strung up for that. This is what he told me as his prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, grant me the serenity to change what I can change the freedom to release to you what I can't, and a growing wisdom to know the difference. It's very different to try to have the courage to change than the serenity to change. Either one is a wonderful step forward. I find it easier to reflect his nature when I'm giving myself the serenity to change what I can and the freedom to release to him what I can't. Because he says his yoke is light. And Jesus in Matthew 21, uh, 28. Oh, that's a different one, isn't it? Isn't that funny? I just made another mistake. Here, we're going to go over where God wants me to be. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. The 28 part was right. The chapter was wrong. Devil's in the details, huh? Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Take a deep breath and imagine what he's really saying there. What is a yoke? A yoke would have two oxen, for example. Jesus is going to take on the load and Jim's going to take on the load. Now Jesus is not codependent. Please remember that. Jesus is not codependent. He will not pick me up and carry me unless that's what's needed, like in footsteps. But he will carry as much of the load as I can't carry in a healthy way. He wants me to carry what I can, and he'll carry what I can't. His load is light. And yet how many Christians are feeling like there's a 500-pound boulder in their backpack called the mask of Christianity, the white-knuckled demand for perfection under your own steam? That is not God's plan. His plan is to work through you, for you, with you, in whatever you do. 
He's not a bellhop. You know, hair trigger prayer. We, you know, I want this. Pray for it. If I pray for it, it's supposed to come. If it is God's will, and you pray it, it will happen. If it's not God's will, and you pray it, it won't happen. He's not intimidated, and he doesn't have a popularity contest. He's not a democratic guy. If it is not in your best interest, you can pray till hell freezes over. Ain't going to happen. Because he loves you enough that he'd rather have you mad at him. He wants relationship, people. He wants you to be mad at him when you're feeling mad at him. When something horrible happens, he wants you to be able to be mad at him. He knows he can take it. He will not hold it against you. Now back to Matthew 21, where I was starting. This is Jesus again. I, I'm, I, you're probably getting tired. I'll be done another hour or two. <laughs> Joke. <laughs> Joke. Jesus said, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later, he changed his heart, his mind, and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. That son answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what the father wanted? God would rather have honest rebellion and relationship leading to compliance than to have a mask of compliance and not do what is healthy for you. Now because he loves you perfectly, he can't want you to rebel. Because when you rebel against perfection, you go downhill. You know? Because he loves you perfectly, he can't want you to rebel. But he'd rather, if that's where you're at, he'd rather have you honestly rebel and let him know, God, I'm not going to do it. And he'll still have his loving carpenter's hand on your shoulder saying, well, Jimbo, you're going the wrong direction, just like the north to Turlock. I love you still. I hope you change your mind. But let me go with you, even though you go in the wrong direction. God is transforming me from the inside out, like microwave cooking. It seems like my language is the last to go. <laughs> and he's working on it. He's working on it. But I reflect his nature much more than I did and much less than I will. Next uh, As a psychologist for a moment, there are four qualities any higher power can have that would maximize the fundamental principles of healthy change. It could be a pine tree. It could be the big Buddha. It could be the 49ers. I don't know. 
if it has these four qualities, it will in fact help you in your recovery, in your process of becoming more healthy. One, giving unearned grace and love. Two, giving unchanging consistency about truth. Three, giving honest, accurate, non-judgmental feedback. Four, having absolute faith in your ability to continue moving forward in your recovery. Coincidentally, I know of no other higher power than Jesus that meets those four criteria. As a psychologist, Christianity, relational Christianity, the relationship with Christ, the relationship with Jesus in a work shirt and jeans with his hand on your shoulder is the perfect model to maximize healthy power and to produce healthy change. The problem that comes for many people is that Paul in his brilliance, and he was brilliant, wrote volumes about what a Christian life should look like. And he wrote a few little words about how to do it. Human nature says, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do? Okay, I'll just go do it. That's not God's plan. Because then you're doing it under your own steam. Like we were talking about before. His plan is to let him through you continue to dwell and grow the container so there's more room for him to shine through you. Someone sitting across from me one time, through tears, she was just feeling very broken at the moment, very tender, very raw. And she looked up and through the tears she said, you put skin on Jesus. And I started crying too. And I just gave her a big hug. That was the best compliment anyone could ever, ever give me. To put skin on Jesus. To let him shine through me to a point that someone else could see him through me. It doesn't get better than that. It does not get better than that. And if that means that my behavior is not acceptable to someone, oh well. I'm sorry. But I would rather displease you and reflect him then turn my back on him to please you. And that's a miracle. That's a miracle. Just take a deep breath and just notice if there are areas of your life in which white knuckled. Have you all, put your hands out like this. Make white knuckled fists. Hard. Harder. Harder. Your life depends on it. Come on. Harder. Harder. Now hold your breath. Take a deep breath. Hold your breath. Tighter. Tighter. Hold your breath. Tighter. 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 What's the matter? I'm seeing some of you starting to breathe. Didn't you do it right the first time? Why'd you have to take another breath? If you took the breath the right the first time, once should do it, shouldn't it? That's how a lot of people approach the Christianity. I should do it perfectly the first time. Ain't going to happen for me. And for most people, it doesn't. Some people, it does. And it's wonderful when they do. I, I'm a little envious of them in one way. 
and another way I'm not so envious, I'm, they're missing something. Because every time I'm in a valley, every time I'm in the middle of an ain't got it, every time something is just sucking canal water, really bad, that's when I'm drawn to him. This book was born out of 9-11. I was writing an essay on grace and personal responsibility for our website that my nephew is the webmaster of. 58 paragraphs that are so deep that you had to put hip boots on. It's written for Christians. The bus book is written for people, Christian or not. The handbook is written for people, Christian or not. But the fact is, he wants us to be real with each other. But he wants us to let his nature shine through. My wife receives the love language of service, not words. I can say nice things. doesn't mean anything if my actions are not thoughtful. I do the dishes. Our kids are grown. It's no big deal because we're not, you know, it's not a lot of dishes. But the fact is, I do the dishes. Sometimes I don't want to. In the bus book, they talks about the economy of giving. If you give begrudgingly, it costs you a great deal. I know not to give begrudgingly. I want to do the dishes, but I don't want to do the dishes. I've worked hard all day. I don't want to do them. Here's how I handle it. This is how I handle everything. Except the things I don't. I say, Lord, I don't want to do the dishes. I'm feeling resentful. She's in there watching TV, relaxing. I just came out of a session. I've been working hard all day. Now, she's been working hard all day too. But at that moment, I'm busy going wah, 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 so I don't think about that. Okay? Distorted filters. So I say, Lord, I, I, I whine for a bit. It's important to get that out. Because that's real too. Wah, 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 wah. And Jesus is very patient. Oh, okay. And then I say, Lord, let's make a deal. That's the nature of my relationship with him for 25 years. Lord, let's make a deal. You do the dishes, I'll keep you company. And when I can, I'll take over. Now that may sound really weird, but I'm, I'm being absolutely, absolutely honest with you on that. This happens occasionally. Sometimes I can just do it freely. And so what happens is he starts doing the dishes. That part of me that he is starts the dishes. And he always does it freely. Always does it freely. And then before long, I start feeling the water and the soap and things are going pretty good. And before I know it, I'm doing the dishes. And I finish the dishes. Hey, sweetie, would you like a cup of tea? Freely. That's my walk. Thank you very much.